up? Good morning. Good morning, Miss Donna Andrews. So this is the, our last Sunday in the season of Epiphany. I know you guys are all sad about that. The season of Epiphany in the church calendar is interesting uh, because it invites us into a period. This is the seventh, seventh week of Epiphany. And it invites us to a season of searching for God. And the passages that we've been given over the last uh, month and a half uh, show us how God is revealing God's self in and through the person of Jesus. And if you've been here the past few weeks, you know we've been going through Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount. We had Kevin speak last week. Uh, he was great. Uh, and we continue right where Kevin left off last week uh, in Matthew 5, verse 38. Uh, a few weeks ago, I wrote a, I wrote a blog post about uh, polite, the polite Jesus. And uh, some people didn't really like it that well. But I wrote it because I, I saw this sentiment going around on Facebook um, that Jesus was uh, really nice and that we shouldn't be uh, critical of, of others because Jesus obviously was never critical of anyone. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, so, uh, and, but what, what I found is that this like nice Jesus is, is being misused. It's like being misappropriated. Um, Jesus being nice in this particular way that it's being used is a, a defense of those in positions of power and privilege to allow their systems and structures to remain in place by using Jesus as the mechanism that should not bring judgment upon injustice or unethical behavior that marginalizes other people. Can I get an amen? All right. Maybe not. God. All right. Um, yeah, I'll say it again. Like, Jesus being nice in this way uh, is used as a defense for people that already have, like, a position of privilege to say that you shouldn't use Jesus against them because Jesus was nice, right? So you, you shouldn't use any ethical uh, mechanism to say that what I'm saying is that the people that are being framed in these circumstances, right? Well, it'll make sense later, I promise, all right? Um, because Jesus is going to do this again today in today's passage. Um, and many people from... Uh, that are from where I'm from, that part of the world, uh, tend to say things like Jesus isn't political, um, which uh, Jesus uh, will find out today is incredibly, I mean, just like so supercharged uh, with politics. But before we get into all that, uh, I'm going to do something we haven't done in a while, which is uh, read our scripture uh, amongst each other. So take a couple of minutes. Uh, it's in the bulletin. It's going to be up here. There are Bibles that made of paper in the pews. Uh, back here, if you want to, if you want to break open the Bible, so take a minute, find a neighbor, and read aloud um, Matthew five thirty-eight through forty-eight. Don't be shy; read it aloud with your neighbor. Find someone. All right. So Jesus continues in the Sermon of the Mount to offer us a new way of being in the world, being present in the world. He's, he's calling us to re-understand uh, the Hebrew scripture. Uh, he's reinterpreting 
Uh, it, um, in this particular section, 38 through 48, uh, is uh, something that Walter Wink, uh, theologian, will, will call Jesus' third way, and I'm going to be using a lot of his interpretation uh, going forward. So let's take a look, uh, starting in, fir- in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. How many people have heard this before? Pretty much everybody has heard this before. Um, it comes from Exodus 21. Exodus 21 references it. Leviticus 24 references this. Uh, Deuteronomy 19. So Jesus is taking things that he knows from the Hebrew scriptures, and he's reinterpreting it for his current audience. Uh, what is interesting here uh, is... Uh, that this text right here is, in a lot of these texts, have been used in, in many ways to perpetuate uh, cycles of abuse. Uh, so we need to be really careful when we read verses 38 through 48, um, because whether it's physical abuse or uh, psychological abuse, these verses have been used throughout history to continue, like I was saying earlier, used by people in positions of power to keep their oppressed people groups, the marginalized people groups, in that position, right? So just eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, turn the other cheek, said by the people in positions of power. So we need to recognize that first off and recognize that um, we just need to be careful uh, whenever we, and I would try to be as careful as possible. Um, So who is Jesus speaking to? He's he's delivering the Sermon on the Mount. Who is he giving, um, who is he giving his teaching to? Yeah, from the disciples, and now we assume that there are a group of people uh, gathered. Yeah, followers. Uh, And primarily people that are fairly down and out. People of low income, more than likely. Uh, Jewish people, uh, people living under Roman occupation, Roman threat. These are not people that are in positions of power. These are not people that are in positions of privilege. Yeah, I mean, just common, common people. Uh, so this, this is the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew is also writing, whenever we, we read the text, we want to be mindful of who is Jesus talking to in this particular case. And, well, not, not here, actually. I mean, he's talking to a group of people that is uh, probably really like your everyday type of person, probably Jewish. Uh, right, yeah. And then, yeah. And, you know, in this particular case, Matthew is also writing to a primarily Jewish audience. So we know that uh, this is post-destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So Rome has come in, 70 AD, completely demolished the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and Matthew is now writing the gospel in that context. So as you can imagine, the first audience to the text we're reading today is uh, mostly Jewish people that are living under Roman threat and Roman destruction also not a group of people in a position of power in this case. Uh, So let's take a a little bit of a a look at what's going on deeper in this text. So for this, I'm going to need two volunteers. Thank you, Dylan and Riley. Give them a hand, everybody. All right. All right, Riley, uh, you are going to be the hitter here in this case. And Dylan, you are going to be the hittee. So this is going to be fun. All right, so Dylan, I I mean, uh, Riley, whatever your name is, uh, I want you to show us a right hook. Like, give, don't actually hit him, all right? 
But give Dylan a good right hook. All right, so what's the problem with Riley's right hook in light of what we just read? What is different between what Riley just did and what the text says? Well, he hits him on the, he needs to hit him on the right cheek, right? All right, so Dylan, give him a left hook. So give him, I mean, Riley, give him a left hook, not you. I keep calling Riley Dylan. All right, so what's the problem with that? Right, but what is the problem with, in this case, of giving Dylan a left hook? Riley is not, it is mean, but Riley is not allowed to use his left hand because left hands are only used for unclean things, things we won't say at church, all right? So he can't use his left hand. He can't give him a right hook. So how does he hit him on the right cheek? So he has to backhand, so backhand him. In the first century, you backhand someone that you don't respect. You backhand to humiliate to demean. So it's very much a move. So backhands would have been used uh, masters to slaves, uh, parents to children, uh, husbands to wives, uh, as a sign of you are not my equal. So give him a good backhand. All right. Then Jesus comes along. All right. Very political. Jesus comes along and says, turn your other cheek. So Dylan, he backhands you. Turn your other cheek. So what are you going to do now? Exactly. <laughs> so now, now Riley, in, in many ways, is, is he's forced to, he would be then forced to punch him, right? With his, you would be, you'd be like offered with this dilemma. But what does now punching do? Punching him, now you have to recognize him as an equal. So Jesus is speaking, whenever someone humiliates you, so that's how you know in a way that his, uh, audience is someone that was probably used to being backhanded. These are pe- if, if you're if you're used to being backhanded, uh, you're not in a position of power. Thank you, Dylan Riley. <laughs> and so Jesus is, is saying, if if someone if someone backhands you, if someone disrespects you. Uh, Turn the other cheek, not to, so that you can be hit again. That's exactly not what Jesus is saying here, is to perpetuate the cycle of abuse, physical or otherwise, but do something in the moment that reclaims your dignity as a human, that says, I am a human, I am an equal to you, by subverting the power system that existed at the time. So Jesus is talking within a context where all of this type of stuff is really well known to the context that he's speaking to, right? I mean, it's something that we kind of don't know as much of the ins and outs because we don't have the cultural, like we can hit people with our left hand, right? Um, but at the time, that a extremely politically charged thing to say uh, because everybody's like, oh, wow. Like he's just like blowing their mind with, we'll get there. We'll get there. So let's look at, let's go, He's going to continue to do this throughout the passage. Let's look at um, verse 40. Yeah, let's look at verse 40. If anyone, wants to sue, if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. Some translations say undergarment. That's probably a better way of uh, getting at what Jesus is saying here. Um, 
in this case, the law of the time allowed a, a, a person that, that was in power, the creditor, uh, to take a person that owed a debt to court. So I, I could take Craig to court uh, and say, Craig owes me you know, $1,000, and Craig's like, I don't have $1,000, and I say, then I am in the right in his context to say, well then, as collateral, I need your coat. All right, that was the law of the land. Everybody would have been aware of that to a certain degree. And, and then the next thing uh, Craig does is get naked and walk out, walk out the court. Then I am now as the one viewing Craig naked. Sorry for uh, pointing Craig out in that case. I didn't think that through. But now I, Craig is not the one being shamed. In the first century, the one viewing a naked person is the one that experiences the most shame in that scenario. So it is another way, just like turning the cheek, of doing something outlandish that then reclaims your dignity as a person. All right, interesting. Uh, let's look at verse. Uh, oh, this is um, there's a story. There's kind of a good story of this. There was a um, a group of women in South Africa during the apartheid uh, that were living in an, an encampment, and uh, the police obviously weren't happy about this, and so they come in police force, they come in with bulldozers ready to bulldoze their encampment. So what do the women do? They strip off their, their clothes and they just stand there. The police take off, the bulldozers go away, and they don't touch the women. I mean, a very like real life example of like literally stripping naked and using your body, your uh, humanity as the like sort of last line of defense to say, I'm a person, you're going to have to recognize me in this all right, verse 41, Jesus says, if someone forces you to walk with him for a mile, walk with him for two instead. Uh, this has kind of become a saying in our culture, like go the extra mile, like put in whatever. Really not a great interpretation of what this actually means because Jesus is continuing to subvert power structures with this, not saying that like Riley should just like go the extra mile and do some extra credit on his homework. Like not really what this is meaning. Uh, does anybody remember Simon uh, of Cyrene? The guy carries Jesus' cross uh, with him. Well, this is a good example of how the law was used during that day. The reason why uh, Simon had to carry Jesus' cross is because he was standing there. In the first century, if you were living in Rome, uh, soldier, Roman soldiers could just pick anybody off the street and say, hey, you, like, you, you now need to like, work for me. And so that's why they were able to take Simon and say, hey, you, just walking on the street, carry Jesus' cross. You were obligated to be in service of Rome if you just happened to be around long place, long time places. So in this case, Jesus is saying, uh, okay, say a Roman soldier uh, you know, takes you, Philip, and says, okay, well, you have to uh, carry my pack a mile. Well, you would, you would then have to say yes, okay? That was the rule. So then... After a, a mile has passed, Philip just keeps walking down the road. Well, if you kept walking, you, you were only obligated to go a mile. If you kept going, you would then put the Roman soldier at subject of being uh, in trouble by his authority. So you're continuing to go and subvert just by you know, your basic actions as a person to subvert, to subvert the power structures that existed. Um, you know, Jesus is teaching the people of his time to be extremely creative with not a lot, 
right? They don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of power. They don't have a lot of privilege. But he's teaching them to reclaim their power as humans in the midst of an unjust system in the present, right? You can't really change Rome. He's, he's which, another interesting thing, I'm just like thinking of this. Um, it's such an interesting uh, passage. The King James uh, translation of this at the very beginning says like, do not do not resist, or ye not resist, which is really interesting. King James, uh, at the time, commissioned the translation of the King James Bible, and the people working on the translation actually were told by King James that he did not want people to resist his authority. And in this particular verse, he had them put, uh, ye not resist, or whatever. Uh, it, but that's really not what the passage was saying. And this is which is a better translation. Uh, but it's basically don't resist violently. Don't resist in the way the oppressor is backhanding you or causing uh, violence upon your life. Do something creative. Subvert the violent power structures with creative, acts of creative nonviolence. I think it was Gandhi that said, uh, everyone, know, everyone knows that Jesus taught nonviolence except Christians. I think that was Gandhi. Uh, you know, he, he says, you know, re- by your actions, reveal uh, the truth behind these structures of power, these uh, unjust systems. Reveal them for what they are. And I think a really great recent example I've seen of this, there's a photo, I think we have it, of uh, a guy holding up a mirror at a recent protest. Do you have that here? So, uh, you know, revealing unjust systems for what they are. If you can't read that, it says, uh, once a few came to riot, look who dressed for a riot. Uh, and I think in many ways, Jesus is doing much, much of the same. Is He's holding up a mirror to the unjust systems, the backhanding, the violence, uh, in saying, reveal, just by creative action, what these systems perpetuate. We can do this in a lot of ways protesting's away. Protesting raises awareness uh, to issues uh, that might not otherwise get covered, right? There's a lot of things working against uh, people, and it takes thousands, you know, ten, sometimes tens of thousands of people gathered in order to raise awareness of a particular thing that would not otherwise get news coverage, right? People would just, people in power, people paying, they would just Uh, so this is another this is another practical example of how this works out in uh, in something we can do tangibly. Uh, eating behaviors established during childhood track into adulthood and can can contribute to long-term health and chronic uh, disease um, diseases. A number n- a number of studies have consistently documented uh, that the dietary intake patterns of American children and adolescents are poor and do not meet dietary goals. In addition, U.S. food consumption uh, data uh, has a shift over uh, the past few decades. Children and adolescents are eating more food away from home, drinking more soft drinks, and snacking more frequently. American children now obtain uh, over 50% of their calories from fat or added sugar. Over the last 10 years, U.S. children and adolescents have increasingly been targeted 
with intensive and aggressive forms of food marketing and advertising practices through a range of channels. Marketers are very interested in children and adolescents as consumers because they spend billions of their own dollars annually to influence how uh, billions uh, more are spent through household food purchases and uh, future adult consumers. So marketers are targeting explicitly children and adolescents uh, through the mechanisms of power in order to influence their diet towards poor health so that they'll live under, in this case, the oppression of uh, these food companies. Right? Uh, it is estimated that U.S. adolescents spend $140 billion a year, Riley. Children under 12 years of age spent uh, last year $25 billion and may influence another $200 billion of spending per year. This is why advertisers market towards children and youth. And they're marketing, to, what are they marketing? Really great food, right? Not really. So a practical example of subverting this system is what? garden, right? Novel idea to take back in just a very simple way that hopefully grows over time, uh, planting a community garden, going, if you have space in your own house or property, to take those skills and take back your humanity, to take back and plant something really tangible uh, to uh, teach kids in school. I mean, hopefully that's something that uh, is brought you know, into our education system as we realize that more and more studies are coming out like this that show the mechanisms of power at work, right? So planting a garden is a really easy way to subvert a system, uh, to turn the other cheek to billions of dollars being spent against, against your own interests, right, against your system. Yes, sir. Yeah. Verse 43, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, your heavenly Father, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who has be per who has heard be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect before? Has anybody, nobody said that before? Yeah, so Jesus says, you know, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect or your heavenly Father is perfect. This is another abuse uh, verse that I think has been abused through the years to try to command people into some sort of like, uptight like moral perfectionism that you need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect which creates like an unattainable moral standard right unattainable moral goal that then somebody can say well you're not meeting whatever this standard of morality is that anybody can sort of make right not really what this verse is saying obviously in light of the context of this passage uh so um we're gonna watch a, a short video uh that i think might help us get to a better idea of what this means. He walked by on the other side, leaving the man helpless. But then, who should wander by but a Samaritan of all people? And he actually helped the man. Hang on, Master. No, he did. He went over and actually... N no, sorry. No, no, no. I, I mean, this is what I'm saying. That a Samaritan, 
all right? So have a good think about your attitudes. Went and helped. Yeah, no, I see. No, no, no stick with it. Because what I'm saying is that he was a good Samaritan. That's good Samaritan, if you could imagine such a thing. Yes, yes, I can. I, I think we all can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know there's a lot of prejudice against Samaritans, which is terrible. But I'm sure I speak for everyone in this room when I say that there are loads of really nice Samaritans. Yeah, some of my best friends are Samaritans. Yeah, me and the wife went on holiday to Samaria last year and they were lovely people. Couldn't do enough for you. Yeah. So, no, so what I'm finding offensive, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, is your unreflecting acceptance of this cliché that all Samaritans are wankers. No, I'm saying he was good. Yeah, but you're implying that the fact that he was good is worth a story in itself. It's some kind of weird curiosity, like an albino Nubian. No, I'm saying that goodness comes in unexpected places. Yeah, and I'm saying that the fact that you wouldn't expect goodness from a Samaritan betrays your inherent racism. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, that's a big word. Let's just take a deep breath here. I didn't mean to offend anybody. That's the last thing I intended. Um, I didn't realize there were any Samaritans in the room. No, that's not the point. Or Samaritan sympathizers, you know, Sammy lovers. Oh, I can't believe I'm hearing this. No, 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 no. I, I didn't realize it was such a PC environment here, and I suppose I thought that having what was only intended as a fond pop at our Samaritan neighbors, friends even, if you like, would not be inappropriate in the context of a story which is, after all, about goodness. And at the end of the day, it is only a parable. What, it didn't really happen? Well, of course not. A Samaritan tosser wouldn't do that for his own grandmother. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Jesus. What? Oh. oh, that's great. <clears throat> All right, so I play this uh, lighthearted, funny clip uh, because Jesus does something in this passage that I think we sometimes can easily skip over, which is kind of playing into a bit of this mentality, like telling a story about a Samaritan in order to highlight the goodness of you know, the support. But in verse 47, he says, do not even Gentiles do the same? And you can see, if you'll let me engage in a bit of heresy, that here Jesus is still working with the categories of his time. Right? He is still working in, in the process of understanding people as Jews and Gentiles, even in his pointing out that we should love. Right? He's recognizing, even I think maybe unconsciously or subconsciously in this case, that his people, and even himself, who is a product of his environment, is engaging in this uh, dualistic mind, this dualistic thinking that there still is categories of Jews Gentiles, and he's saying, do not even the Gentiles do the same? I, I hear him with the British accent. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And I bring this up because uh, Jesus, in many ways, we always say in, in Christianity that Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? In, in this case, I would say he's fully man, right? It, you can see Jesus' humanity uh, shine through in a little offhand uh, comment like this, that Jesus is in process. Jesus is human. And then in 48, when he says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's not saying, well, I am perfect, you should be like me. Uh, no, he's, this word perfect in this case is actually better translated uh, complete in, in Hebrew. Uh, complete. Be complete. Be whole. And in the context of the previous nine verses, 
to be whole, be complete, is a statement of one's uh, innate humanity. Does that make sense? Uh, it's not this uh, unattainable moral goal, but he's speaking to people whose humanity has been questioned, maybe their whole lives, whose humanity has been taken away. Uh, and he's saying, be complete. Not be complete in the future, but be complete now. Like you, you can hear the maybe like tonal difference in the way that that is said. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be complete. Just be it. Be it. Be perfect. You are complete. You are be it. Reclaim your God-given identity from those who have tried previously to take it. Be complete. We're about to approach uh, the Lenten season in a couple weeks. Transfiguration Sunday is next Sunday. And what this season brings us into is a season of wandering in the wilderness. In Jesus, it's, it's apt in the church calendar that this is one of the last messages that you are sent off uh, into the Lenten season with. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Be complete now. Be complete. Because in the wilderness, you're going to face struggles. You're going to face hardships in the wilderness. You're going to face loneliness in life. And Jesus' message on us is that you are complete. Be complete as your Heavenly Father is complete because you have been given as the image bearer human. You've been given the image of the divine. Love your enemies by working in this creative way that Jesus has spoken of toward their deliverance through highlighting injustices in the world, which reclaims both the power of the poor people that have been taken advantage of. And then it works in the same way to deliver oppressors by breaking these unjust cycles. This is active nonviolence, not non-resistance. It's creative resistance, assertive, assertive nonviolence. Loving our enemies means recognizing the dignity of everyone, which is a lot tougher, it's a lot tougher in practice than it is me just saying it up here. I think we all know, we can all admit that we find ourselves in a situation in which we have to love our enemies. It, it's really difficult. Uh, it takes so much creativity. It takes so much uh, love for the other person um, that we, we have to rely on uh, God's love. This kingdom work we are called to uh, is something that we're we're always in process with. Um, yeah. But it's also, in a sense, something that we always have to be mindful of to say that. Well, I need to uh, learn from my oppression, right? We need to be wary of that like that slight uh, misuse of this to say, oh well if you're experiencing a hardship or you're experiencing a backhand, then you just need to learn something from it. You know what I mean? Like we need to be very careful to I feel like not say that message. Um, but you know, we're kind of running a little late here. But in conclusion, um, in this sense, Jesus is calling us uh, to descend the systems of power 
uh, nonviolently, creatively, actively, in order to transform the world. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for uh, your message that calls us into action, that calls us into love of our enemies, that calls us into love of each other and ourselves, to be perfect as you are perfect, be perfect in the image that you have created us in, your image. And an image of humanity, an image of wholeness, completeness found in you. It is with this dignity of each and every person here that we reclaim our humanity, that we are grateful for each breath we take, for every moment we get to experience love in each other, the experience of being called into deeper love in the well-being of our other sisters and brothers. It's not easy, especially when we're faced with a situation in which we're called to love someone um, that we might consider an enemy, whether it's someone we love dearly, maybe a stranger. Pray that your strength would guide us in those situations, that these words would be rooted deep within us so that our actions really reflect them, that you would call us to be thinkers, to be uh, people who are creative. Um, you've called us to not just be mindless followers, but to be people that go out and uh, halt stand and we'll sing together. Sing, oh God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. And
bar step, you lead me, and I will. 